I'm Luke Simmons. And I'm Seth Trout. And we are here to critique the hell out of culture. Well, hey, Seth, welcome back. It is springtime in Arizona. Springtime, allergy season, wind is blowing. Yeah, wind is blowing like crazy, and you're allergic to grass. That's got to be terrible. I'm just allergic to things that grow in the ground, so not that many things. <laughs> right, just everything that grows in the ground. That actually, it's not that bad here. But yeah, man, it's uh, it's hard having a body, huh? It tends to be, you know, the uh, wind betrays you, and even just a little congestion, you think, Lord, why have you made me like this? But. <laughs> well, and that's a little bit what we're talking about today is the reality of our faith is embodied. You know, last time we talked about covenants, and it's interesting that when we become a Christian, uh, the main thing we do when we become a Christian is not sign a document. It's not sign a, a you know mer- a, a relationship with Jesus covenant. It's actually doing something physically in our bodies. We get baptized. Yeah, yeah, and we, we tell these things, the sacraments, and it sounds like a really fancy religious word mostly because... It is, but it comes from the Latin word sacramentum, which means mystery. And the whole idea is that there's this mystery of our union with Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? How do we participate in the gospel? And the sacraments are uh, five sensory or five sense experiences that are meant to help be pictures to us of the mystery of the gospel. And so the, the visualization of baptism, the, the, the way we taste it, we smell it, we touch it, we see it, uh, all has to do with God helping us connect the mystery of our faith to the reality of our bodily lives. How many sacraments are there, Seth? There are two sacraments if you're Protestant and seven if you're Roman Catholic. Explain that. So there are two sacraments. Why is that? The reason we see the... uh, So John Calvin in this book... uh, I wasn't really planning on going here, but we can go here. So when John Calvin wrote The Institutes of Christian Religion, he's one of the things he talks about is the importance of studying the Bible in the original languages. And one of the illustrations he gives is he points out how the Roman Catholic Church, because they read their Bible in Latin and didn't read their Bible in Greek, every time the word sacramentum would come up in Latin, they would assign another sacrament. And he's kind of poking Mm. fun at some of the Roman Catholics saying, oh, look, uh, a sacrament, oh, look, a sacrament, oh, look, a sacrament, and how they're kind of finding sacraments everywhere. And Mm. he's kind of saying, if you follow their logic, you make a sacrament out of everything. Whereas the only real command, so the other Protestant term for sacrament we get is ordinance, which has a similar connotation, but ordinance is like the things that God has ordained or commanded. And so mm. we see that baptism and the Lord's Supper are commanded by Jesus. He commands people to be baptized, and he commands people to uh, do this in remembrance of me. We're talking about the Lord's Supper. And so... Yeah, we, I heard it pre- kind of a thing that Jesus that Jesus participated in, a thing the early church did, and a thing that was commanded. Right, so foot washing is a great thing to do, but it's not an ordinance. Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Uh, the early church probably washed each other's feet at different points, but it's not commanded wash each other's feet, so that's not a sacrament. Yeah, and you can see why a Roman Catholic person would make marriage a sacrament because marriage is a bit of a sign of the gospel, but it's never referred to um, or commanded to do in a way that uh, we see the other things commanded. So yep. marriage is an option. Yep. It's not a commandment. And similarly with foot washing, it's a good picture of the gospel, the way that Jesus serves us, we serve one another, but it's actually not a picture of our participation in conversion, whereas the Lord's Supper and baptism are. And so that's why yeah. Protestants observe two sacraments. So today we're talking about baptism, and the title we have for this episode is Foreskin, Semen, Menstruation, and the People of God which doesn't on the surface sound like it has anything to do with baptism. That is true. Uh, next time we'll talk about the ordinance or the 
sacrament of communion. Um, so, man, I think we've you know kind of got a lot of people's attention. I'm not sure what the next episode will be titled, but we'll come up with something. It probably will not be as eye-opening as this one. Unlikely. And that is okay. Um, but why, why do we need to even talk about sacraments? Why do we need to talk about ba- baptism? Yeah, and the reason we titled this episode what we did is because baptism, the New Testament practice of being immersed in water as a picture of your conversion, has roots in the Old Testament. And it's actually the roots in the Old Testament that give us real symbolic value and help us see the complexity and beauty of the story God is writing and how the New Testament covenant is actually uh, magnificent. And it's a in the way that Jesus washes in his blood is so full of meaning and beauty. And so hmm. if we just read, start reading the Bible at the Gospels and we see obey and be baptized, we might be baptized out of obedience, mm-hmm. which is a good thing to do. Sure. Obedi- obedience is always good. Yep. But there's more than just obedience that's in view. There's actually formation and beauty, and we're supposed to see it as this wonderful picture of initiation into God's family and a picture of what Jesus is doing for us. And so and so, all those passages in the Old Testament that make us squirm, that make us go, what is this about? Why is this in here? The stuff about foreskin, semen, menstruation, all that, what you're going to tell us today is actually that that's somewhat connected to this picture that we have of baptism as the people of God. Yeah, these these verses that we would consider R-rated or PG-13 or at least squirmy, the seventh graders listening right now are having a terrible time, you know. And I, I don't think they're listening anymore. I yeah. think mom and dad have turned it off for them. Yeah, that is true. That's true. <laughs> yeah, the, and if they haven't yet, you probably should. So there, there you go. So it, the, we read these, and especially with our modern ears, we go, what does this have to do with anything? Right. Like you read Leviticus 15, and it talks about if a man has an emission of semen, he's unclean until he takes a bath or sunset. And you're like, how on the planet does this have anything to do with fidelity to God? Yeah, like a, you had limited papyrus. You're writing this stuff down, and you made sure to include that. You go, yeah. So huh, that's one, oddly So one of the things that specific. I feel, one of the things I feel committed to do is to be as explicit as Scripture is. Sure. And I just don't want us to be a people or a church that steer away from parts that like. God. So if the entire Bible was written for reproof and instruction and encouragement in the building up of the body, yeah, I want to kind of look at these verses that are like, what does that have to do with building up sure. the people of God? And well, let's figure it out. Let's look at it and look at it. So like Leviticus. So, so even if the title of this conversation is attention grabbing, we're not trying to be crass. We're not trying to be ugly or shock jockey about it, but we're going, Hey, th- these things point to something. And so that's where we're going. Yeah. Trying to understand the logic of the law. Cause I feel like when I just obey the law because it's the law, I can do so out of conformity and submission to God, which is, again, not a bad thing. But if I can understand the logic of the law and understand God's heart, understand God's mind, then I have the opportunity to see the beauty of the law. And I'm able to obey as like a form of worship or love, not just submission. It turns the law relational versus just legal. Yeah, and submission's not bad, but I think that I would rather obey out of love than out of just submission. And obviously love can often lead to submission, but I just want to read these texts and kind of, you know, kind of brace ourselves for the severity of this and, and kind of do some contemplation here. So this is Leviticus 15. On a previous episode, we talked about Leviticus 16, the day of atonement, one of the most, so the center of the entire Bible, the most important chapter of the whole Old Testament, we'd argue is Leviticus 16. Right. And in Leviticus 15, right before this, (laughs) right before the peak of Old Testament, we have this text, Leviticus fifteen sixteen through 19. I'm just going to read a couple of these. If a man has an emission of semen, he shall bathe his whole body in water and be unclean till the evening. 
Verse 18, if a man lies with a woman and has a mission of semen, both of them shall bathe themselves in water and be unclean until evening. Verse 19, if a woman has a discharge and the discharge of her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. And you're going, okay, so God made our bodies. God made our bodies do these things. Why is it unclean? What yeah. the heck? Yeah, we tend to think unclean equals bad. And sometimes it kind of is that in the Old Testament, sometimes not as much. Yeah, so you talk about if someone has a low view of the human body, or if someone who's like, say, an atheist or a deconstructing Christian is like, the Bible doesn't like your body, God's anti-body, God's law is oppressive, it's, it's negative, it creates these shameful views of our bodies that semen administration are things that make us shameful. It's like, these are some of the texts I'll go to. Mm. So even when it comes to like loving some of our skeptical neighbors or maybe people who grew up in the church and are kind of looking for a reason to get out of, get out from authority under, get out from the, under the authority of God's word. They're like, look at these stupid, ridiculous verses. What is this? Like we're talking about eternal life here. And we're talking about one month, one week, a month, a woman's unclean. This is ridiculous. And so, I just really want to get into these texts and understand them and ultimately help us see how they point forward towards baptism. Yeah. So since we've started with semen administration from Leviticus 15, let's, let's kind of go there. Um, How does baptism somehow correlate or connect to semen administration? So there's, there's one, there's a couple of things here that he wants to wrap our minds around. One is in the Levitical worldview and in the Jewish worldview. Um, So in Leviticus 17, so if you think about like a mountain here and Leviticus 16 is the top of the mountain, Leviticus 15 is right before you get top of the mountain, 17 is right after you get top of the mountain. In Leviticus 17, the logic of the David Tome is offered and it's that that life is in the blood. And so the reason that we offer animals a sacrifice for sin is because life is in the blood and that we give life for life and that when we sacrifice blood for life, we're actually atoning for sin. And so mm-hmm. if you have questions about atonement and why, Life being in the blood and life and blood being offered for sacrifice of sin. Book of Hebrews talks about there's no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. Um, that's a whole part of this logic. And so when we understand that, and then we look towards this text in, in Leviticus 15, 19, a woman has her menstrual impurity for seven days, whoever touched shall be unclean. The whole idea around this is that we are to be reverent with life and that which represents and creates life. And so uh, whether it's semen, which creates life or sure. blood which represents life that these things have have a high view and we should take them seriously and we shouldn't mm. just see them as nothing and so even in the first century one of the things that we see in greek is that actually in in uh in this kind of pagan culture that for males to emit semen or to urinate was the same word basically just meant to relieve yourself yeah that the 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 process of reproduction was seen as just relieving yourself it was nothing Hmm. There's no significance. There's no moral value. There's no relational value. It was it's just, just kind of a, hey, you have this kind of biological urge. You have that kind of biological urge. Yeah, it's connected to the same part of your body. Yeah, this you bodily know, it's fluid, all the same thing. This bodily fluid, that bodily fluid. You're just whatever. urges. And it was similar in the pagan nations that it was just when you just kind of had a low view of the human body, a low view of the reproductive process, a low view of what it meant to create life. You just have you don't have any regard for the holiness of uh, semen or menstruation. And holiness sounds like a pretty weird word to attach to that because we are such a prudish culture in general, whether we're so, Christians or not. So how, is it, how, is, how are those things holy if those things coming out of a person's body make them unclean? Yeah, so this idea of unclean it, uncleanliness is not about 
moral or immoral. It's about reverence and space for the divine. And so when someone has an emission of semen, there should be like this space that's created for what just happened meant something. Hmm. And so I'm not going to go trouncing into the temple. I'm not going to go, uh, like there's, there's meant to be like a buffer almost hmm. around. We take it seriously. Hmm. Kind of, and similarly, like if, if you found out that someone you love passed away this morning, you don't make plans for this afternoon. You kind of let it be. You sit, you, you dwell, you engage. And it's similar with menstruation. Just like if life is in the blood, then the two things are happening. One, this is a remarkably pro-life society. Hmm. Every month that you have a menstruation cycle means you are not with child, which would have been seen as a season of grief. That there's, there's no, like nowadays it's like, whoo, <laughs> my period came, you know, yeah. and there's like celebration. Yeah, for some. For some people. There's and for others, it really is a season of grief. Yeah. I can remember times when we were hoping to have another baby and, and that month would come and tears would come with it. Yeah. And there's, there's space. Yeah. There's almost like God is saying like that grief is holy. That, mm. gr- that grief needs to be taken seriously. Yeah. And when your wife is in that season of grief don't use her to meet your needs. Hmm. And so there would have been this heaviness in Jewish culture that if there's not a child in the womb, that's sad. Yeah. And also it would have been this picture of because life is in the blood, there's this picture of there's been a missed opportunity for life to be created. Hmm. And we could have had life, but instead we have blood. Which isn't, that's not like, hey, you're guilty for that or that's a bad yeah, thing. It's not like, immoral, but yeah. it, there is like a, there's a sense in which this is not exactly the way it's supposed to be. Okay. This is part of the je- curse of Genesis 3. That so, so that may pain and childbearing, and this is one picture of it. That makes sense to me. What makes less sense to me is the, you want know, a husband and wife come together, and there's a mission of semen. That actually does feel like a holy moment. It feels like um, in the context of marriage between one man and one woman, this is like, um, in a sense, a kind of preview of the enjoyment that God has with his people. Um it can be very intimate. It can be, I mean, it should be very intimate and very close and very special. How is that unclean? Yeah. So the whole idea is if, if they come together and there's a mission of semen, they shall bathe themselves in water and be unclean until evening. Again, you talk about making space for intimacy. There's not like a, you do the deed and you get about your business. There's mm. something here about lingering, dwelling, being present. Mm. And so I do think that this, un- this cleanliness is both a picture of like marking out things that are holy from things that are unholy. And there's a sense in which it'd be unholy to not make space for the grief that is menstruation or to use your wife to meet your needs when you're not able to reproduce. And there's also a sense it would be unholy to not do, like this idea of you need to take a bath and wait till evening before you go about your business. Otherwise hmm. you're going to do it. So there's there's something that, that space is created there. But what's interesting as it relates to baptism is is this idea of taking a bath like mm. there's like a, the ceremonial washing yeah. that you're meant to be over here away because the whole idea of like the high priestly washing is you, you have to wash your hands before you go into certain parts of the temple and the high priest has to wash themselves in a certain very particular way before they go into the holy holies and before they go into before they go to the holy places and before they go into the holy holies, there's another washing that has to happen. And so this idea of like symbolic, I, if I am in this state, I can only go this close. Mm. And so when we think about this idea of marking out spaces where you can be and spaces where you cannot be, 
one of the things that this washing unto cleanliness is a picture of is that we are washed in baptism and we now have entrance into the space with God for all eternity. Mm. And so it's not the case now that we become unclean in these situations. This is an old covenant situation. Sure. But part of that is because the picture of baptism is meant to help us see we always have access to the temple, which is wherever the spirit of God is. Yeah. We always have access to the innermost places where God is with us, that there's no longer spaces that are reserved for certain times in certain places when mm-hmm. we've been doing certain things, but now we can have access to God in all times. Mm-hmm. And so one of the pictures of baptism is that there's no such thing for the people of God anymore as clean or unclean. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. And I love the kind of once for all nature of it, right? If it's like, hey, every month this kind of cleaning has to happen, or a few times a week this kind of cleaning has to happen, or every time this happens, it's this kind of clean. It's like we don't have to get rebaptized every day. Yeah. We get baptized once as a picture of the cleanliness that's already come into our hearts, the access to God that we have. But but the physicality of that ceremony is still significant in what it communicates. Yeah, it's it's basically showing like you are always now clean. And so even like the words clean and unclean, again, have these kind of shameful connotations. Like if someone says like, oh, I'm unclean, that tends to do with like moral impurity, but that's not really what's in view here. We're talking about um, the space that's created to create reverence and holiness for things that beget and, and lead to life, which is obviously semen and menstruation or menstruation is the evidence that the semen didn't do what it could have done. So one picture of baptism is related to the cleanliness. Uh, anything else you want to say about that? No, I, I just want to emphasize for folks listening that the the two things here that, that matter a ton is that if we attach any significance to like the act that can create life, which here we talk about emission of semen, that is not something that pagan culture has given to us. Hmm. Like any meaning, any dignity, any value, even what's ironic now in our current cultural moment where everyone wants to have their entire identity built upon their sexual preferences or sexual orientation or sexual identity, whatever you want to call it. Like the only reason that any of that has any value whatsoever is actually texts like Leviticus 15, Hmm. that there is, there is holiness and meaning assigned to what our bodies do. Yeah. We're not our urges. We're not uh, to use one another, but these are actually holy special. It's interesting. I even think about, in First Corinthians 12, Paul's using the analogy of the body. And, you know, he's talking about how there's different gifts and there's just varieties and differences within the, the Christian community. But he talks about how it's the parts that are, that are most, you know, that most need to be covered are, is because they're most special, yeah. right? And so even, you know, th- this just reminds you of like, this really is talking about, you know, the preciousness of how God has made us and, and how different that is from how the world sees it. Yeah, and when we fall temptation to treating bodily desires as, I mean, in particular sexual desires, is we start if we feel tempted to think of those as like just like urination or it's just an appetite, just a physical thing, that's just pure paganism and has nothing to do with the God of the Bible. But there's real meaning and significance ascribed that there's a holiness to the act mm. and the acts that surround it. Yeah. And the whole idea of that love creates life. Yep. And that the act of love creates life. And there's holiness for it, and there's holiness for it when it doesn't happen. Yeah. And that, that all is really meaningful. And even when it comes to this idea of what business has God regulating what I do with my my parts, like, well, the obvi- the biggest answer is, well, he created them, so <laughs> right. it's all his business. But on another level, there's something to do with the fact that God chooses these things as significant, and even that he puts Leviticus 15 near Leviticus 16 
is that the way we handle our most intimate things is somewhat related to our most intimate relationship with our relationship with God. Sure. And I think about when I talk to people, you know, the most common sexual complaint you get, the most common complaint for men is frequency, not enough. The most common complaint from women is duration. And if you ask people in the church, what's your most common complaints about prayer? Hmm. They would pray, They would complain about frequency. I don't pray enough. And they complain about duration. When I pray, it's not long enough. Hmm. And so there's real parallels That's to really interesting. the way we handle our most intimate things, hmm. the way we handle our relationship with God. And there's something significant about that. And I don't want us to be prudish, and I don't want us to be crass, but at the same time, one of the reasons I think it matters that we go as explicit as scripture is because it actually helps us see like the dignity and value of all the parts of our body. Sure. Not just the yeah. other ones. So we've talked about semen administration. The other piece is foreskin. So foreskin semen administration. What does foreskin have to do with baptism? Yeah. So the first thing that I would say is this is another good picture of God because he takes a symbol that the Egyptian nations used and he applies it to his people. So in Egypt, in the priest, in the what would happen is the priests in the temple would be circumcised, and the whole idea was they were devoted from their most intimate parts to the service of God. But what happens is when God calls a people to Himself, He has all the the males be circumcised, hmm. meaning there's not just some people who have access to like the intimate places of God, but there's reality that I have a kingdom of priests that all my people have access to me. And there's different uh, forms of the priesthood, but the sense is like there's this dignity and accessibility and uh, relatability that belongs to every single person in his household. And so this is why Deuteronomy 10, 16 says, circumcise therefore the foreskins of your heart and no longer be stubborn. God's saying that I've given you this physical symbol and he commands it to Abraham and says, circumcise yourself and your sons. So the Jews are circumcising themselves so they would have a physical symbol that they're going to be devoted to God from their most intimate parts. What ends up saying is he goes and says, that physical symbol isn't quite enough. Mm. You can do the outward act, but what really matters is inward devotion. And so he commands the people, so you've been circumcised, but in Deuteronomy 10, 16, he says, you need to circumcise your hearts, mm. which you kind of go, what does that mean? <laughs> right. You know, is there a foreskin on my heart? But the whole idea is he's saying there remains this foreskin on your heart, this, this, this uh, v- picture or this metaphor of lack of devotion. Like you haven't, so you've physically committed yourselves to God, but you haven't from your heart committed yourselves to God. Yeah, so God's just, he's not just going, man, I really just hope my people are marked physically in this way. He's going, I really want my people to be devoted to me. Yeah, he's, he's reappropriating the pagan symbol of priesthood and saying this dignity belongs to all my people, not just some of them. What ends up happening is he says, okay, circumcise your hearts. But then later on in the book of Deuteronomy 36, this 30 verse 6, here's what he says, which is really significant for us to think from a, how the Bible fits together. He's looking forward to the new covenant. Even in writing the old covenant, he's looking past the old covenant to the new covenant. He says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. And so God's looking to a time where he's like, I am going to circumcise your hearts. You won't just have a physical symbol of your devotion to me, but you actually be devoted to me from the inside out. And so this that, is a, that will lead to life. That will lead right? to life. I mean, the implication is here that if this doesn't happen, death. Absolutely, absolutely. And similarly, the book of Ezekiel talks about something. He talks about giving a new heart. Ezekiel thirty six twenty six. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you 
a heart of flesh. And so this idea of a new heart, a circumcised heart from the heart will be devoted to God. The spirit's going to come and he's going to, so the, the doctrine is called regeneration, which is when the spirit gives us a new heart. Um, this is what we're looking forward to. And so even the physical circumcision was meant to be a short term sign, but eventually there's going to be this better thing coming, which is going to be circumcision from the heart. You won't be just devoted from your most externally intimate places, but you'd be able to do the Lord from your most internally intimate places, which sure. is which is the heart. So this uh, circumcision really marks out the people of God. It's supposed to go deeper, but it but it but it also marks them right. If, if a Gentile says, "Hey, I want to join this community," they would have to be circumcised, right? That actually becomes one of the major controversies in the early church: is do uh, Jews who put their faith in Christ, or I'm sorry, do Gentiles who put their faith in Christ still have to be circumcised in order to truly be the people of God? They w- they would have in in the old covenant. Yeah, and and this is one of the things, one of the most important texts as we think about this, what circumcision means for us now today as Christians. This is Romans two twenty nine. Paul's talking about who are the real Jews? Are they you know genetic Hebrews? But he ends up saying that by how the word Judah is like, if you kind of take it literally, means like praiser of Yahweh. Judah. Yeah. Um, and so Romans 2.29, he says, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision or true circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit. So he's kind of warning these people who have the physical sign. He's like, look, who your daddy is physically is not as a, of eternal importance, like who your father is spiritually. Mm. And we see that in the book of John. John tells all these Jews who are physically circumcised, sure. yep. you're of your father the devil. And they're like, wait a minute. <laughs> right. I'm circumcised. And Jesus is saying, but, but you're not, not your heart. Yeah, your heart is not circumcised, which is the most important. If your heart was, you'd hear me, you'd know who I am, you'd trust me, but you don't. You want to kill me. Yeah, and so a Jew is, a true Jew is one who's a Jew inwardly, who praises the Lord from, from their heart. A circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. And so this is where we get to the I, picture. By of the way, for those listening, I don't know if you know this, but, but uh, Seth is ethnically Jewish. So I feel like you especially are able to say that in a way that maybe would be a little more insensitive if someone like me said that. I, I don't... You know, I obviously have the scripture, um, but, you know, as a Gentile, it's it's hard to walk around and go, you're a true Jew, you're not, you're a true Jew, you're not. But this is what God's word says. Yeah. But Jesus does, and Paul <laughs> right. does, and they're Jews, and, right. and I do, and I'm a Jew. It's not it's not <laughs> internalized anti-Semitism, you right. know. Sure. As, uh, but what we get to is this idea of, like, this circumcision of the heart. And so what you see in the early church is this question of, like, well, what's the symbol then? What's the symbol? What marks out the people of God? And you see this in the book of Acts, that as people are going out, they're meeting these people, and the mark of the people of God is the presence of the Spirit. Yeah. That's the real sign of the covenant, is the Spirit is in them. The Spirit is giving them a new heart. And there's this fellowship of the Spirit, this bond of peace that the people can see in the book of Acts, even before they're baptized in water. What ends up happening is they would say, okay, this baptism now, this is Romans 6, 3 through 5. Um, Paul says this after talking about two Jews, one in release. says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? We are buried with him in baptism in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we may too walk in newness of life. That newness of life is the new heart the Spirit has given us. Hmm. And so what we see is that baptism in the Spirit, which is the circumcision of the heart, which is the regeneration of the heart, which is trading the heart of stone for the heart of flesh. So being baptized in the spirit, which is the spirit of God, marking us out as part of the people of God, ends up being physically symbolized in baptism in water. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the reasons why we as Baptists right. baptize after and upon the confession of faith. 
is because the confession of faith, Jesus is Lord. First Corinthians 13 talks about how only the spirit can say Jesus is Lord. And so if we're saying Jesus is Lord, the spirit's given us a new heart. And so we're baptized into that confession because we're saying the physical act of dunking and raising is a picture of us having been baptized in the spirit. And so we're going to physically commemorate this in and out of the water as a picture of the way the spirit has washed and cleansed and circumcised our hearts. This is also what Paul's talking about in Colossians 2, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah, in Colossians 2, it says this, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That seems to be talking about that internal circumcision of the heart. Absolutely, absolutely. Circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Amen. So b- baptism, j- just like you know, the removal of the foreskin through circumcision, is this marking you out as the people of God. Now baptism is this sign that you are part of the people of God. Yeah, and kind of like the removal of the foreskin is meant to be a removal of the obstacle to your obedience. And so this kind of a pictured out, there's even a couple texts where uh, the prophets are talking about how Israel is only partially circumcised. Like, did you not get the whole thing off? Cause you have problems. Like you're not really committed. If you're really committed, you'd be all the way for circumcised. And in this whole picture of like baptism is all the way under and all the way out is this picture of we're being fully washed, fully cleansed. The spirit is fully binding our conscience um, to Jesus. And so the layers of symbolism and baptism mm. are tremendous. Sure. You have this marking out of you go from not access to access in the priestly cleanliness washing. You have this picture of not circumcised of the heart to being circumcised of heart, washed in the spirit. Yeah. But then also you have this explicit picture of like it's a coffin. You go in, <laughs> you come out. Sure. Right. It's just like being buried. Your old self dies. Your new self is risen. And the, the last symbol, what's actually a symbol of uh, the circumcision of the heart again, is the, uh, the phrase is yonic or vaginally shaped. Is mm-hmm. the, the, a lot of the early church had baptismals that were kind of meant to look like. Yeah, I, I've been in some in Turkey. You know, you can go into these old ruins. I remember this church of St. John the Apostle in Ephesus. And, you know, it's all kind of in ruins. It's, I think, from the 3rd or 4th century. But the, you can go down into the baptismal, and it's shaped like a womb. Yeah. It's shaped like a uterus. And it is this picture of you go down and you come out in the new birth. Yeah, it's being born again. And this is from John 3. Uh, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one's born again, they can't see the kingdom of God. Mm. Meaning you were born once, not in, you are born once into Adam's family. Yep. You know, in sin, apart from God. And now you're being born again into the family of God, into Abraham's family, the family of faith. Mm. The family that was circumcised, circumcised from the heart. The yep. one who praises God inwardly. And so Nicodemus goes, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a time, a second time in his mother's womb? And Jesus is like, you're not getting this. <laughs> like, I'm talking <laughs> right. about being born of the Spirit. Right. And so baptism is this beautiful picture with multiple layers of being born in the Spirit. And so we could say be baptized in obedience, period. And I think that would be enough because God is God and sure. we're not God. But I think there's way more beauty and there's such a depth to this idea of devotion from the intimate places yeah. of newness of life of second birth, of access that we see in baptism yep. that I think is exciting and is tremendous and honestly helps me look at some of these texts that initially make me feel like, <laughs> ick, the Old Testament. Sure. Can't we just read the New Testament? To like, wow, these are actually paving the way 
in casting a vision for this reverence and dignity for humans and for their bodies and for the way their bodies are being made new in Christ. Yeah. One of the things that strikes me too, as we have this conversation is just like you could be circumcised physically, but not of your heart. It's also possible to be baptized and not actually be regenerate. Um, obviously we try to do what we can uh, as pastors to try to walk with people and see if there's uh, evidence of God at work in them. Um, but in the same way that, that your fo- you know, foreskin being removed doesn't really at a heart level mark you as a person of God, being baptized in and of itself doesn't do anything. Otherwise, we would just be kind of walking around going, hey, you want to get baptized? Hey, you want to get baptized? But it's like, no, th- this is a picture of the faith we have in Christ, of the true change that's taking place. Absolutely. And it's important for us to kind of see this. I think a lot of people view baptism as a hoop you have to jump through in order to like become a covenant member or something like that, yeah. or in order to like feel good about your conscience before God. And I do think that having a clear conscience before God matters, but I also think if we really see the privilege of what it, what it looks like to help ourselves be marked out as people of God, then baptism will be something that we're excited to participate in because it's not just a public confession of faith, but it's actually like the celebration of a birth of a child mm. that it's in the same way you come out, it's a boy. <laughs> you know, there's, there's excitement in that moment. Yeah. I think we, as a church, when someone's baptized, we clap as hard as we can clap and cheer as loud as we can cheer mm. because it's a, it's a boy moment. Sure. Like there's a, there's a new birth. The delivery was successful and we're excited about what God is doing in this family and bringing new people into it. When I remember a few years ago as I was going through uh, my seminary program and really kind of looking at the significance of baptism, the thing that struck me is how much the Apostle Paul in his writing seems to really indicate that our baptism should remain in our mind's eye as we live a Christian life. Mm. I kind of tend to view it as like this thing that's way back in the rearview mirror. Yeah, I have a picture of when it happened, you know, like literally a physical picture of when it happened. Um, but I don't think about it ever. And what the Bible is kind of constantly saying is, hey, go back, live live into your baptism. Remember that you were made new. Remember that you were raised with Christ. Have this moment be something that really marks you out in a significant way. And um, I just think there's a lot to learn there. I mean, we're, we're constantly as people looking for these identity markers that show me kind of who I am and where I stand and what defines me. And for the, for the people of God, our identity is to be marked by this baptism. Absolutely. That's one of the reasons why we love doing baptisms on Easter Mm. is because the picture of baptism on Easter, I mean, the picture of baptism is beautiful all the time, but Easter is the day we celebrate that Christ left the tomb. And this, this picture of baptism is that much more clear on Easter Sunday, resurrection Sunday we're celebrating that people are still leaving their tombs Mm. and we get to see it and that the resurrection of Jesus began something. It didn't end something that it wasn't something that just happened and it's over, but something that's still moving forward in power by the spirit to this day. Yeah. And so I, I think that one of my favorite things as a pastor to witness is people being baptized partially because it's just so foreign to like the natural instinct. You know, I like to do is wear a (laughs) t-shirt you know, share a semi-personal story. Right. And then in a kind of unflattering way, get in front of a pool of people and then get out of it. Right. When they clap and have eyes on me. Yeah. Like some people might really enjoy that because there's problems that uh, they have. Not many. <laughs> yeah. But the vast majority of people, that's like kind of their worst nightmare. And oh, so, yeah. so I think there's something, uh, something noble to even like facing that fear and going, I'm going to publicly bear witness to the way Christ has worked in my life. That's one of the reasons why we're excited about baptisms coming up on Easter here pretty soon. Well, one thing that I think is just cool is even though um, 
I mean, there's stuff that is, we're having this conversation. I'm learning. I'm guessing everybody who's listening is learning and going, man, there is way more significance to baptism than I realized. And I bet a lot of people that would gather at any given church watching a baptism would not have a lot of this in the front of our minds. Um, and yet there's something about just seeing someone get baptized that is always powerful. Um, any church member would say my favorite days are and my favorite moments are when people get baptized. And I love that God's people just kind of instinctively know that even if we can't always articulate all the reasons why and make all these connections that we've been able to try to unpack today. It's, it just, there is still something I think just by the witness of the spirit that helps us go, this is really cool. Yeah. It's, it's such a beautiful thing. And as we remember our baptism, it's a picture to us that our goal is to always live into our baptism. Yeah. Like we don't need it when we, when we regress and when we sin, we don't need to get rebaptized. but just like Jesus died once for all who would be saved. He died once for us. He cleansed us once. The Spirit gave us a new heart once. Yep. And the effect of that is ongoing, and we get to celebrate it and rest in it. And I do think if you're listening and you're a follower of Jesus and you haven't been baptized, you have unfinished business. Do it. Yeah. Get baptized. And we'll put a little thing in the show notes about who to email so you can get baptized on Easter. Yep. But I just think it's one of the privileges that we have as people of God is to celebrate entrance into the family of God through our new birth. Yep. That we all have one father. And he's a good father Mm -hmm. and he has brought us into his family through no fault of our own. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I doubt we can come up with a more provocative title for next time when we look at this other sacrament of uh, the Lord's Supper, but uh, we'll get to work on that. I don't know. Maybe we'll get our, we don't have a creative team, but maybe if we had one, we we could get them working on that. Um, But until next time, uh, that's it for today. Seth, thanks for your time, man. Take your allergy medicine. This embodied life is a tough one, and you're only getting older and falling more apart. So good luck to you. Well, that was encouraging. Thank you for that. (laughs) Hey, but someday you'll experience the resurrection. That is true. There's my Jesus juke for you. Yeah. No allergies in the new creation. Can't wait. All right. Well, have a good one, and that's it for today. (laughs) 